the church where they don't have a backup team. They don't have a really strong group of pastors and elders who can fill the pulpit. And so um, it was cool. It was really a blessing to get to go and serve that church. But man, I just missed you guys. It's so good to be back this morning. As we were singing and praying and worshiping, I was just reminded how good God has been to my family. It's such a privilege just to, to be a part of what God is doing here at Red Tree. Um, so, if I could get a little, a, little, a little sappier this morning, is there anything else I can pour out? You guys are great. You're awesome. Uh, no. <laughs> um, anyway, we're continuing our series in Advent today. Uh, Mike opened it up last week. It was fire. If you missed it, you should go back and listen to it on the app. And I'm saying that even though the recording got messed up and it sounds terrible, you should still go back and listen to it. It is worth pushing through and hearing because God was in it and it was fire. But today we're continuing that series. So uh, Advent, right? The, we, we have like the, the Advent, we have blue Advent candles. That's, we have the technology. <laughs> uh, we, we have the Advent candles, right? Like there's this this, this part of the church calendar, this history, this thing we come together on, right, where we go and we give a different focus each week as we prepare our hearts for celebrating Christmas, which really, I think, in our culture, it's such an important thing to do. We have this, this holiday, right, that is so sacred and so built into our faith, but it's also so ingrained in our culture, right? And it's this weird place where our worlds collide, and it's so easy to just slip into the mode of comfort and family and traditions and culture and the speediness of it and just miss an opportunity to be brought back to the beauty of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so having these rhythms built in to help us slow down and take a breath and just remember God's goodness, I think are really, really beneficial. And so last week we talked about the idea of hope right? This idea that, that the, whole, the whole point of Christ coming to earth was that he is the solution to sin, right? That Christ came in power, right? He was a little baby. He was sitting like he was a little helpless baby in a manger, but he is the God of the universe. And he stormed the gates of the fallen and cursed world and the authority of Satan. And he brought with him the power of God and the power of life and the power of resurrection. And that is hope, right? We dug in and talked about the, the origin of hopelessness, the story of sin in, in Genesis 3 and how, how there's this whole thing that God's perfect design has been broken. And because of sin, because of the curse, there is this sense of brokenness and hopelessness and things are not the way they ought to be. But Jesus is the promise of God to restore the way things ought to be. We're going to say this phrase over and over and over because I want it burned into your soul. God is a promise maker and God is a promise keeper. Even in the moment of sin, you go back and you read Genesis 3.15, when God was describing the curse itself, this is life now that sin is in this creation. He was already pointing forward and saying, but I will fix this. I will not allow this to have the last word on my creation. And he gave hope, hope in the form of himself, hope in the form of Christ, hope in the form of the cross. And today we talk about faith. Faith is how we engage hope. And I am excited to get into this passage. We're going to be in Genesis 15 today. If you guys want to go ahead and turn there, 
If you don't have a Bible with you today, there are house Bibles on the end of each row. We really, really believe in the importance of access to God's Word. If you are here today and you don't have a Bible, please just snag one of those. Or better yet, come talk to me and I will get you one that's nicer. Because uh, those, have, those have gone through the rounds, as it were. But we, we, we think that's important, right? So as you turn to Genesis 15, we're going to read the strangest Christmas sermon text uh, probably ever. And it's going to be wonderful. Uh, let me pray for us before we engage the Word. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of coming together. Thank you for the gift of your church. Thank you for the gift of your gospel. God, as we take a few minutes to open your word and read this story that, if we're honest, is so separate and foreign to us, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be our interpreter today, that you would illuminate the text, that you would convict us of our sin, that you would remind us of truth we've forgotten, that you would teach us the truth of your gospel. And Lord, may we, may we have clear eyes today to see you as you truly are and see your heart for this, this world you have made, and even us. And God, may we leave this place today having spent the morning with you. Jesus, we love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So we're in Genesis 15, and we're going to start in the first verse of the 15th chapter of the book of Genesis. It tells us this. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these and cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham or Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you... You shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between those pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river of Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kedamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. 
And this is the word of the Lord. What a text. What a text because for most of that, we read that and go, what is going on? Here's what I want to do this morning. I want to go back through this story and point out kind of the cultural and historical pieces that make it hard for us to wrap our heads around what's going on here. Some of you, maybe, maybe if you're a little more like biblically astute, maybe you've been in church world a little longer, there were a couple phrases there that maybe stood out. This is a, a passage that Paul elaborates on in his New Testament letters several times in several different books. So maybe there was some stuff where you're like, oh, I know, I, I've, I've heard that part before. But in large part, this is just kind of a weird text. And so I want to point out kind of these historical cultural pieces that make it hard for us to understand. I think when we do that, what God has for us in this text, it's just going to become really clear. And so when we get there, I think we're going to end out our time with just a quick word on faith from Hebrews and then really like just kind of meditate on some of Paul's words in Romans as we take communion. Sound good? Cool. So let me remind us or get us in the space of the context here. So we're in Genesis. This is the first book of the Bible. This is part of the Pentateuch, the first five books. These are the most holy texts of the Old Testament of the Jewish people, right? These are the books that the the prophet Moses collected together to gather together the history and story of redemption of God's people, right? Genesis tells the beginning of God's redemption story. It moves from God's creative and specially creative act with, with reality and with humanity into sin. Why is there suffering and why are things wrong in the world? And then it connects those two fundamental pieces to the story of the Jewish people. We see uh, in Genesis kind of this connecting point between the defining thing of the Jewish people, their enslavement and freedom in Egypt, that's the story of the Exodus, and reality. Genesis moves from there is a God, he made everything, sin's a thing, and it broke everything, to why are these people enslaved in Egypt trying to get free, right? Genesis is that story, and we're jumping into the middle of it. Genesis is told through the perspective of these representatives who God is connecting with as he's seeking to move his redemptive story forward of fixing what is broken in the world. Genesis moves from basically key person to key person, from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and so forth. We're jumping in the story of Abraham, the patriarch of the Jewish faith. This dude is foundational to biblical theology, to our understanding of God's redemptive story, and to our faith. You should know about Abraham, right? He's worth your time studying. So here's the basic story. Abraham's just a dude. He's just living his life. And then God shows up to him one day and says, hey, what's up? I'm God. You should follow me. Um, I need you just to kind of leave this area generally. Just kind of go. We'll work it out. And Abraham's like, sweet, let's do it. So he gets all his stuff, and he gets his family, and he leaves. And he begins to kind of live this nomadic life. And God makes these series of promises to Abraham as he moves forward in obedience and faith. As Abraham literally just walks away from his home and his family and wanders off into the wilderness to try and figure stuff out, God gives him increasing promises. I will give you an heir. I will give you descendants that are as numerous as the sand on the beach. I will give you a land to dwell in. You will not be nomadic forever. 
And so Abraham moves forward in these promises. But what happens is, what we see kind of happening in Genesis 13 and 14, is that Abraham is blessed by God. He receives all these material blessings. Everything he touches and does just flourishes. He becomes really wealthy. But the actual specific things that God promised him don't seem like they're happening. In fact, in the text that we pick up, Abraham has become so wealthy and so powerful that he was able to muster an army of his own employees and go and conquer several kings to free his nephew who'd been kidnapped. Right? Like that's the stage of life he's in. He's at the place where he's like, I've got enough employees to literally have an army. That's, that's how my business is doing. And his army is successful, right? He goes and he conquers these kings and he frees his nephew. And that's what happens in Genesis 14. Our text picks up and it says, after these things happen, Abraham is living this life. He's gone forward in obedience. He's been receiving God's blessing, but the specific promises have not been fulfilled yet. So God appears to Abraham again and he says, Abraham, I am your shield. I'm your protector and your reward will be great. And Abraham has an interesting response, where he basically goes, what reward? What are you going to give me, God? More employees, more money, more business? I don't even have a kid. When I die, all my stuff is going to my servant. Now, really quick, I know like on some level, we can relate to like what he's dealing with there, uh, of the struggle in their marriage of barrenness and desiring a kid and, and not having one. Like that's something... Something a lot of, like, we can feel the weightiness of that. But we need to understand that that's a, that's a different discussion in this culture and this time. So we have people in our society who choose not to have kids, right? That's not a thing in Abraham's world. To not, to not have kids is not just like, oh, it, it has the same weightiness it has for us of this, this unmet longing and this piece of your heart and that pain and that hurt, but it also carries tons of social and legal ramifications, right? It's a big deal. It's deeply, like, continuing your family line is deeply wound up in their identity. And so for Abraham, this is torture. God, this is literally the thing you said you'd do. It hasn't happened. The blessings, it's cool. Like, being, yeah, being, having, having, like, my own personal army, that's cool. It was cool I got to go, that's, yeah, it's cool. I don't have a kid. It's just, I mean, like, what good is this? I want us to stop there for a minute because there's a lot of power in that. If we're honest, that's really arrogant on his part, right? Like, God himself just appeared to him and was like, Abram, I'm protecting you, I'm blessing you. And he's like, yeah, yeah, but you're not doing this. There's a level to that where it's like, dang, Abram, really? <laughs> that's how you're going to talk to God? Yes, it is. That is how he's going to talk to God. Because that's where he's at. That's what he's feeling. That's actually the thing his heart is struggling with. And so he brings that honestly and rawly to God. And do you know what's beautiful about that? The God of the universe is big enough to handle us in our immaturity and our hurt and our rawness. He doesn't respond with, how dare you, or with rage or anger or indignation. He doesn't respond with, hey, I told you I'd do it. No. He responds with, come outside, Abraham. 
Let's talk. He meets him in the longing of his heart. He meets him in the hurt that he's already carrying. He says, your servant's not going to inherit your stuff. That's not how this is going to go down. Come outside, come outside. Look at the stars. Can you count them? That's the kind of legacy I have planned for you. You can trust me with that. And look at that verse. Abraham believed him. There's power in that. We're going we're gonna to come back to that. But God graciously, graciously meets Abraham in the longing of his heart, in the wounds of his heart, in his hurt, in his inappropriate interactions, right? And God meets him with grace and with promise and with reassurance. L- look, this is not where we're going with this text. I just... Like, some of us in the room just need to hear this today. God wants to meet you exactly where you're at. He will not respond to you in like. If you come to him in anger and pettiness and immaturity, he is big enough to handle that and steward you and hold you gently and draw you back to truth. You have safety to approach your God in complete honesty. Christ bought that for you. You don't need to hide from him. You don't need to hold back from him. I feel like we need to probably sit in that a little bit. But anyway, God meets Abraham in this, and he reaffirms and draws him back to the same promise. Now we know, right, God is God. He's going to do what he says. He shouldn't have to repeat himself. (laughs) But he does. For the sake of Abram, he does. He reminds him of his goodness and the plans that he has for him. And then he does this really weird thing. He reminds him of the whole of the promise. You're going to have a kid and you're going to have a land. And at this point, Abram just goes, God, how can I how can I just have assurance? Like, I'm here with you right now, and I'm hearing you say it, and I'm like, yes, yes and amen. But like, I only talk to you like once every 10 years, you know? That's like how it goes down. It's like a long time in between, you know what I'm saying? And like, just how how can I live in assurance of your promise? And so God says, go get some animals. Let's let's chop them into pieces. Uh, And this is weird, right? He does this thing, they cut up some animals, they split them in half, There's make this like weird, gory path of blood between like the guts of the animals. I actually taught this same passage when I was a youth pastor like eight years ago, and I made this little illustration, little visual illustration for this. I just want to show this to you guys really quick. There's no sound, it's just, but you don't need sound. It's just, it's just, uh, here we go. Yeah, yeah. You see, the trick is to get like a party balloon and fill it with fake blood and then stick it inside the stuffed animal so that when you chainsaw it, because you gotta get you gotta get the spray, like that's the part that's most important for the Yeah, yeah, that's the part that's most important for the illustration right there. (laughs) 
Here's the thing. <laughs> Here's the thing. <laughs> There's no recovering from that, is there? <laughs> I did that to myself. I, I asked him to put that in there. Here's the thing. God, in his very nature, makes promises. If, if, you, if you don't see anything else in his nature in Scripture, you should see that. Our God is a promise maker. He makes lots of promises. The thing that's important and the thing that this text is going to illustrate for us is that God is also a promise keeper. He does what he says he's going to do. He's a promise maker and a promise keeper. We need to remember that. We need to burn that into our souls. Because the reality is, just like Abram, there's moments when God's faithfulness is so clear and so easy, and it's just like, yeah, yeah, of course. Of course you're going to do what you say, God. But then we step back out into the world, and we go to work, and we deal with our kids, and we deal with our marriage, and we deal with our neighbors, and all these different things. And for some reason, when we are just in the weeds, those promises seem way more distant. And it's way harder to have assurance. So God's response is, go cut some animals in half and get a lot of gore going in your backyard. That's weird. We need to know this is actually like an established ritual that exists in this day. This is a form of a covenant ritual. And this could happen in a couple different ways. Sometimes when a conquering king would conquer a city, he would take a bunch of animals, and he'd chop them in half. And I mean like down the middle, like split. Like, like you got the cow, and it's like ugh, half the head, half the... Like the, the worst, most inconvenient way to chop them in half. That's the way you got to do it. They'd chop them in half, and they just spread them apart so that there's just gore in the middle. And you kind of make a line of these things so that you have this pathway of gore between these two cut-up animals. And the king would say, all right, my new vassals, my new subjects... Go ahead, walk through this path of gore as acceptance of my kingship over you. And the assumption built into that is this. We have peace now. I'm not going to destroy your whole city. I'm not going to kill all of you. You're going to submit to me as your new king. But you cross me, you will be like these animals. Walk through the gore, feel it between your toes, because that's your future if you cross me. We have a covenant of peace. And the peace is dependent on your keeping it. I'm the king. Deal with it. <laughs> Dang. Uh, there's a good chance Abraham did something like this in chapter 14 on a side note because he conquered some kings and set up some peace covenants in the region where he lived. This was also done just in a legal or social covenant. You make an agreement with someone? Go get the cow, let's chop them in half, the inconvenient way. And then you spread the gore out and you walk through and you each walk through and there's this sense of as you walk through, you say, I will withhold or I will uphold my covenant. And if I don't, I'll be like one of these animals. And the other person walks through and goes, I will uphold my end of the covenant. And if I don't, I'll be like one of these animals. And that's how they would signify the agreement. Now, we need to understand what a covenant is. A covenant is like a contract, but it's not a contract. And that's really important. There's a difference. We kind of connect the two because we live in a world of contracts, right? And it's like, oh yeah, covenant. It's like, it's like a Bible contract. 
But there's actually a really important difference. You see, if you make a contract with someone, you each now have a legal obligation to fulfill your end of the contract, right? If one person fulfills their end and the other one doesn't or refuses to, they are in breach of contract. And now the first person is entitled to some form of restitution or restoration of what they've fulfilled, right? The contract is broken. It is no longer binding to either side. That's not how covenants work. In a covenant, rather than saying, hey, if one of us breaks this and the whole thing's null and void and we go back to scratch, in a covenant, you're making an agreement to do something and you will do it on fear of punishment. doesn't matter what the other person does it or not. They will do their, their piece on fear of punishment. When you make the covenant, you're saying, I will do this. If I don't, I will suffer punishment, likely death. And the other person says, I will do this. And if I don't, I'll suffer punishment, likely death. If you do your end of the covenant and the other person doesn't do theirs, you don't get out of it. You're not released from it. The covenant still stands. That person's just in violation, so they die. <laughs> but you still got to do your part, regardless. It's an important distinction, and we're going to talk about why as we flesh this out. So Abram meets with God and says, how can I have assurance of your promises? I believe you. I believe you. How can I have assurance? And so God says, let's make a covenant. I'll obligate myself to these promises. I want you to hear that. God, in his grace, in his interactions with Abram, in his interactions with humanity, chooses to obligate himself to his promise. Now, we know he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to for a couple of reasons. He doesn't have to because he's God and he does what he says. His word is good, right? But also he doesn't have to because he's God. That's a human. How many contracts do you sign with amoebas, right? God obligating himself to the details of the life of a human is crazy. But God in his grace and his love wants Abram to operate in the freedom of assurance and faith. So he says, I'll tell you what, Abram. Let's make a covenant. I will bind myself to this commitment. And so they go and they spread the animals apart. Now here's the thing. Covenants have two sides. You both walk through the gore, right? What's, what's Abram's half of this covenant? What is God required of him at this point? Not a huge amount. It's really this. Belief and obedience. Believe me and follow me. Now here's the problem. The text says that as this covenant ceremony gets closer, Abram knows what he's setting up for. This is the thing. A dreadful darkness falls upon him. Dreadful darkness. I want you to th like that's, a, that's an image, right? Here's what's going on. Abram's not an idiot. He knows what his side of this covenant with God is. It's belief and obedience. And as the covenant gets really close and gets really real, he realizes, uh, I don't do that. I don't uphold that. The whole point of this is that I was doubting him. That's not good. If I walk through the gore, and then I doubt, and then I believe, and then I disobey, which he's done multiple times since the first covenant, it will go really badly for him. And so now all of a sudden he's sitting here going, 
okay, this just got really real. This is, this is really intense. But God had that whole part set up. This is his plan. He sets up the covenant, and then it says, when darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot and a torch passed between the pieces. Now, I'm not going to dig into this for our purposes today, but these two images are symbols of God and his relationship to Abram. You can Google it. It's interesting. What God does with Abram is he says, I want you to have assurance, so I'm going to obligate myself to this. Let's make a covenant. And then he himself passes through the pieces. I will do what I said I will do. You will have a son. You will have a land. I will work out my story of redemption through you. And if I don't, may I be like these animals. And you will respond in belief and faith and obedience. And then he passes through the pieces again and says, and if you don't do that, I will be like these animals. God makes the choice to obligate himself to humanity through a covenant, knowing full well that humanity does not have the ability to uphold a covenant with God. Too broken by sin we are. Too ruined by the curse. We can't do it. So God makes the covenant. And then when it's our turn to pony up, he says, if you break the covenant, I'll die. I'll take the punishment. Wow. Fast forward to Advent. And a little baby being born in a manger to some unwed teenagers on the other side of the planet. Right? Well, I guess they were married by then. You get what I'm saying. God himself enters into the mess, the muck, the mire of the cursed and broken and ruined world. Lives a perfect life deserving of nothing but eternity and perfection and worship and praise. And yet, willingly chooses to give himself up to be slaughtered. Willingly allows his own blood to be shed, his own sinless blood to be poured out. See, sometimes, I don't know if you've heard this before, but I've heard this before. I'll be having conversations with folk about the gospel, and people will say, okay, I just don't get this. If God is God, if he's truly God, why does he have to kill his son to forgive sins? That doesn't make sense. He's God. I mean, I feel like he could just be like, okay, the rule is I press this button and sins are forgiven. Boom. See, look, no killing involved. I mean, okay, whatever. I get why you might think that. But God is a God who keeps his promises. He's a promise maker and a promise keeper. And he has obligated himself to this cursed and broken humanity. And he has said willingly that he will spill his blood to pay for our breaking of the covenant. He chose to do that. It's not like God had, no, no, that was his plan, his choice. He wanted to. He wanted to create a way for us to be covenanted to him again. 
knowing that we could not fulfill and uphold a covenant. So he made a way for a covenant of faith. He made a way for a covenant where we don't have to do anything. We just get to receive. And even in our faulty, inconsistent, hypocritical reception, we still get to receive his blessing and not receive the punishment. What a God we serve. What a gospel. Beloved, this is why Jesus came to earth to fulfill the covenant he made with humanity, to pay the price for our unfaithfulness, our breaking of the covenant, that we might still receive the blessing. Wow. So, today is the Sunday where we talk about faith. How does faith play into this? Look at Abraham's response. When God tells him and reminds him of the promise, in verse 6, he says, I believe you. He believed him. And the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. He heard the promise and he accepted it. Hebrews chapter 12, this is a famous verse, or chapter 11, verse 1, there's a whole section there where he's talking, the author of Hebrews is talking about this progression of God's promises and people's faithful engagement of those promises. In chapter 11, verse 1, it says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. See, sin broke the world, and with the curse came hopelessness. Things are broken, and we cannot fix them. But we worship a God who makes promises, who said, I'll fix this. You can't, but I can, so I will. I will fix this. And out of the words of God and his promises were birthed our hope. Things do not have to be this way. Things could be better. Things could be restored. God himself can do it. He's made the promise. He will send his son. He will pay the price. He will make things anew again. There is hope. And when we receive that hope and we choose to engage it with belief, confidence of things hoped for, assurance of things not seen, that is our faith. Our faith is the heart that like Abram is able to hear a promise that sounds, if we're honest, ridiculous and go, but God said it and I know he keeps his promises. I believe you. I believe you. I'm going to walk forward believing you, God, because I know you keep your promises. That is faith. Think about Abraham. Left everything. He's old. His wife is old. They're past the point of having kids. He's making plans for how his family and his line will die and it will go to someone else. And God says, no, you're going to have a kid. There's no way, really. But he says, okay, God, you keep your promises. I'll believe you. I believe you. You keep your promises. He told the Jewish people for generations, I will send a Messiah. He will fix what is broken. 
And when these two young people with all their lives in front of them hear the promises of God and hear what God is doing with this Messiah, they say, okay, God, we believe you. We're going to walk forward in faith. We're going to get married and we're going to have this kid and we're just going to trust that you're going to keep your promises. And Jesus comes into the world and he lives the perfect life and he dies the perfect death, and he raises from the dead, and he ascends on high. And beloved, those promises of God are still sitting in front of you today. He has told you that Christ is sufficient. He has promised you that there is a way for you from death to life. That that his sacrifice on the cross is sufficient to pay for your sin and your curse. He has promised you that there is a free way for you from death to life. He's promised you that he will return. That that right now we are are waiting in the midst of the curse and already but not yet and we still see the effects of wrong and sin and illness and suffering but not forever. He's promised you that he'll come back. And when he comes back, everything will be made anew, made in his image, and everything will be perfect, and there will be no more tears and no more suffering. And sin and death will die. He's promised these things. Eternity is sitting in front of you as a promise from God. Perfection and restoration, true intimacy, true life, being the person you were created to be, those promises sit in front of you beloved. We worship a God who keeps his promises. We worship a God whose word is true. And we have the invitation to walk forward in faith. To say, Lord, I don't see it. I don't see it. This world is terrible. This illness is terrible. This trial is awful. I don't see it. But you said so. And I know you keep your promises. So I will walk forward in belief. I will walk forward in faith. Because I know you're trustworthy. I don't see it. But I know you're trustworthy. That invitation is there for each and every one of us. If you are in this room and you have never actually found life and salvation in Christ, that invitation is there for you right now. You can walk forward in faith that he is sufficient and able to save you from your sins. That there is nothing you have done and nothing you can do and nothing been done to you that is stronger than the power of Christ. That He can redeem and restore and save you right now if you walk forward in faith. That invitation is there. And for those of you who have received Christ, that invitation is still there. You can still walk forward in faith. Your God is still sufficient to love and sanctify you and draw you forward to the eternity that he has been designing for you from before the foundations of the earth. You can trust his promises. And you can walk forward in faith and you can live the kind of life that we've seen our brothers and sisters live in the New Testament and throughout church history. You can be radically oriented around the proclamation of the gospel and the serving and helping of the hurting and poor. You can be a part of the kingdom work because your God keeps his promises. 
And he will return. And that kingdom will be established. That invitation is right in front of you. To walk forward in faith. To reject the lies of death. The lies of the curse. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read a text for us. From Romans. Chapter 4, where Paul is actually exegeting this story we just read. I'm going to read this. And then I'm just going to open up some space for prayer. We'll have prayer counselors. Michelle and Matt will be available for you guys. They'll be, they'll be up around the room. I'll be up here. The band will be, you know, piddling through one of those songs. That's how you know the Holy Spirit's there. I just want to give some space for us to be present with God in prayer. Because, beloved, there is an invitation for you right now to walk forward in faith. And it would be foolish for me to try and spell that out for each one of us because there's just too many of us here. And that's going to be contextualized to your story and your wounds and your hurts and your doubts. But I'm telling you something. Right now, you can bring those doubts to God with brutal honesty. You can bring those frustrations to God with brutal honesty. He'll respond to you with kindness. He will remind you the truth of his promises. And he will invite you to move forward in faith. So I want to give some space for us to do that. I want you to find some space to be alone with you and Jesus for a minute. If you can do that in your seat, more power to you. If you need to find some space in this room where you can be alone, you can do that. If you need to pray one of our prayer counselors, if you need someone, just another human being to pray out loud over you to help you put language to something, please do that. But I'm going to read this, and then we'll just give some space for us to meet with Christ. And then we'll continue on in our response. Sound good? This is Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 16. It says this. That's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is father of us all. It is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead, who calls into existence things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. That's kind of brutal, Paul. And when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his own sake alone, but for ours also. 
It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Beloved, God is a promise maker and a promise keeper. Do you believe?